The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I want to start our time by sharing with you something I had the opportunity to do this past September. Uh, this past September, I went with another staff member of ours, Josh Slaughterback, who helps oversee our groups and missions as well. And we went over to uh, Cuba to look for a potential missions partnership. And so we went, we visited with some churches and pastors, had this incredible trip, and we have some things in the works for sending teams from our church to Cuba to come alongside the work that they're doing there. And uh, there's opportunities there available for you if you're interested in that. But when we were there, we had uh, this completely jam-packed schedule in three days. We went all over the place uh, and to, to different towns and met with different churches but we had a change of schedule that gave us a block of time that I, I wasn't expecting to have, and I was able to go and visit family of mine, that some of which I've never met before. And so uh, I was able to arrange for a van, uh, someone who was helping us there, a, a Cuban, helped me go to see my family. He knew where they lived, which is this incredible God story. So, so we, we end up driving over about an hour and a half away from Havana is this small town, uh, called Catalina de Guinness, and that's where my family has this farm. And so here's a picture of me with my family uh, right there. So that's my tío and tía, and then my cousins, so uncle, aunt, and cousins there. And I remember walking through that, and what's so significant about that picture is we're standing in front of the home that my abuela grew up in. Uh, so that's the farm that uh, I just was walking through there and envisioning her as a little girl wandering around, uh, crawling and playing and running about by the malanga and all, all the stuff they were growing there. And it's just this really sweet experience. And so here's what I want to do. Before we jump into 2 Timothy 4, I, I want you to just have this moment with me where you, to, you were to envision coming across a letter, a letter that I wrote to my tío in Cuba. So imagine you pick up this letter and you read it and you come across what my correspondence with my uncle who lives far away from where we are right now difficult to communicate back and forth to, I want you to envision coming across this letter and reading through it. Because if you read a letter that I wrote to my Theo, you might read something like, hey, things are going well here. Please tell Unelcito that we say hello, that we love him. Also, I want to let you know that Brittany's doing great. She's in Gainesville. She's wrapping up her degree in music. She's incredible. Also, Rubencito, he's in New Jersey doing big things. Great things are happening in his life hey, please make sure that all is well with Dia. So if you read that letter and you read, those are very real people, uh, and you read that letter, you would say, cool, that has no relevance for my life. Who, is, who are all these people? I don't know these names. I don't know their stories. They have no points of connection with you. Now, in a moment, we're gonna read a part of 2 Timothy chapter four, this letter, where it's almost identically that scenario. Paul, the writer, is writing from, from prison in Rome. He's in prison because he's been preaching the message of Jesus and the Roman authorities, they've put him in prison uh, because of some of the things that people accused him of that were wrong, that were false. So he's in prison for preaching the gospel and he's writing to his dear friend Timothy in Ephesus. So he's sending this letter off to Ephesus so that Tim Timothy might receive it. And at the very end of this letter, what Paul does is he lists a bunch of names. A bunch of names that for us sound strange and hard to pronounce. And he tells us about these different people and he says, hey, this person, here's what's going on in their life. 
here's what's happening over here. Hey, by the way, I want to make sure that you greet so-and-so and so-and-so in Ephesus for me. Also, by the way, those of us who are here in Rome, so-and-so, homeboy over here, all of us, we say hello to you guys as well. And so they're having this dialogue where he's just listing these names, and we're going to read this, and I'm telling you, you're going to read this passage with me. We're going to follow along and think, well, what relevance does this have for my life? Cool, Eubulus says hello. What does that mean for me? Why is this in the Bible? Well, here's what we believe. We believe that, yes, Paul is the author of this letter. He's a real person with real life circumstances. Paul is the person writing this letter to Timothy. But at the same time, we believe that the Bible, the authors of the Bible were inspired by God with another audience in view. So Paul is not just writing to Timothy, but at the same time, by, by extension, the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write these words is in view of a different audience, in view of us, God's people, for all time and throughout all history. In view of us, he is instructing us and teaching us so that in their very real circumstances, God also has a message for you. And so we're going to read this list of names here in a moment, and then we're going to break it down and look closely at some of these stories. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 19. Here's what it says. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That's our passage. So what do you do with this? Uh, some of you, maybe you're doing word habit with us where you're getting a daily reminder to read a chapter of scripture. And sometimes we come across passages of scripture where they're just lists of names. What do you do with a passage like this? How, how does this have relevance for our life? Well, here's what we're going to do. Uh, interestingly enough, when you search through these names, and there are tools that help you do this. You can do this um, on uh, apps or websites like Bible Gateway, but you can look and see if these names pop up in other places in the Bible. And what you'll find if you start doing some research is that these names that are listed here pop up several times in the New Testament. It's not our first time reading about these particular individuals. And so what I want to do is I want to profile some of these names, give us some context, and then hopefully as we look at their individual stories, something that's unifying will begin to emerge and hopefully be this beautiful truth that we can kind of wrap a bow around this passage. So let's start with those that Paul says to Timothy, hey, I want you to greet these people in Ephesus for me. These are people in Ephesus. He wants Timothy on Paul's behalf to greet them. Here's the first one. It's Prisca and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila. Uh, if you have a place to take notes, I would highly recommend you take notes. We're going to go through so many names and so many places and so many details, it's going to get confusing. So if you have a place to take notes, I'd commend you to do that. So Prisca and Aquila, we'll give them a nickname. We'll call them the power couple. So say the power couple with me. One, two, three. Good, you're still listening. The power couple. So Prisca and Aquila, in other places of the Bible, they're called Priscilla and Aquila. So Prisca and Aquila, they are a wife and husband that were Jewish Christians, so they were raised Jews, heard about Jesus, the Messiah, and started believing and following Jesus. So they were Jewish Christians, and for a time, they lived in Rome. We know this from the book of Acts, so they lived in Rome, but there was a Roman emperor named Claudius who issued a decree that all ethnic Jews were to be banished from Rome. They had to leave the city. 
So Prisca and Aquila, they flee Rome because of this persecution from the Roman emperor that kicked them out. They leave the city. So the Jews leave the city and Prisca and Aquila are among them and they go to Corinth. Now to give you some context so we can see it on a map, if you've got, uh, let me make sure I get it straight so you can see it in your orientation. So modern day Italy over here, okay, Corinth is in modern day Greece, okay? So they traveled over to Corinth and in Corinth, in Acts chapter 18, they come across Paul, Paul, the author of the letter to Timothy. They become good friends, and Paul shares something in common with Priscilla and Aquila. They're both tent makers by trade. So Prisca and Aquila, they're these blue-collar people. They have a tent-making business. They make tents and fabrics, and so they work with their hands, and this is what they do. So they're in Corinth making tents. This is how they make their living, and Paul joins them for some time. Now, the reason I say that Prisca and Aquila were a power couple is that, though, yes, they were uh, tent makers by trade, they were very influential leaders in the early church. This husband-wife combo, they are mentioned several times in the New Testament. There's even one time in the city of Ephesus where there's this gentleman named Apollos who was this sharp, eloquent speaker that large crowds would gather to listen to him speak. And Prisca and Aquila, this wife and husband, they pulled him aside and said, hey, listen, you're doing a great job teaching, but there's some parts of your theology that are missing. And so this woman and man helped correct Apollos. Husband and wife combination. They, they helped him understand more fully what Jesus, what Jesus is about and who he is. And so they're this incredible couple. Paul says, hey, now that they're in Ephesus, Timothy, I want you to make sure that you greet them for me. Here's the next one that we have uh, in this list. We have the household of Onesiphorus. The household of Onesiphorus. When you read Onesiphorus, I see the word onesie. I don't know if you see it too. So we'll call them onesies, okay? The household of Onesiphorus, onesie. We find out earlier in the same letter, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 1, a few chapters before. Onesiphorus is from Ephesus, but he visited Paul while he was in Rome. He came and made the trek all the way to Rome from Ephesus. Now, if remember, remember our geography here? So if you've got Italy, then you've got modern-day uh, Greece, then you've got modern-day Turkey, which is where Ephesus is. So Ephesus over here, Tro uh, what's his name? I already forgot his name. Onesiphorus, onesie, there we go. Onesie makes the trip from Ephesus all the way to Rome to try and visit Paul. Interesting fact about him, though. His, his name is described differently than any other name here. Notice that Paul writes, he says, hey, greet the household of Onesiphorus. He doesn't say, hey, say hello to Onesiphorus and his wife and children. He doesn't say, say hello to Onesiphorus and his household. He says, say hello to the household of Onesiphorus. Here's why that's significant. Many scholars believe that Onesiphorus, in between the time he visited Paul in Rome and the writing of this letter, has passed away. And so Paul is sending his greetings to Onesiphorus' widow and his, and his widow's children. And he's saying, hey, make sure you greet them. He was so meaningful to me. He came through for me when I was in prison and, visited, and wrongly accused. He visited me. And that meant a lot to me. So he wants to send greetings to them who are in Ephesus. Okay, so those are the people that he says hello to in Ephesus. Here are those that he wants to give his friend Timothy in Ephesus an update on. The first name is Erastus. Erastus, we'll call him Rasty. Rasty, okay. So Erastus, he says, remained at Corinth. Now, we find out about Erastus in Acts chapter 19. Uh, Timothy and Erastus had a unique bond. Paul send Erast, sent Erastus and Timothy off on this journey to Macedonia to tell people about Jesus. 
So Paul sends them ahead as missionaries, and they go to Macedonia and tell people about Jesus. They're doing ministry together. I mean, imagine living on the road like that, like backpacking with, a, with someone. Imagine all the memories they have, the, the laughs that they had, the times when they, they had fear for what was happening in their life. So Timothy and Erastus had this bond together. But that's not the only place we hear about someone named Erastus. In Romans chapter 16, verse 23, there's another Erastus mentioned, and there's some debate as to whether or not this is the same Erastus, but I want to show you this. Romans chapter 16, verse 23, Paul is writing from Corinth to the church at Rome, and he says this, Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So this tells us a couple things. Number one, it tells us that Erastus was in Corinth, because Paul is writing from Corinth. And he says to the church at Rome, Erastus, the city treasurer, says, says hello. Now, a city treasurer, what their role was is they would oversee the finances of a city. And if someone named Erastus was in Corinth, and Corinth is this major dominant port city, very wealthy city, I mean, Erastus would have overseen quite a large city budget. I want to show you this uh, discovery that was found in uh, modern day Greece where Corinth is. This is a a stone carved in limestone with this uh, description written there, and it's Latin language, Latin text. And here's what this stone reads. It's dated back to the same time period. It says this, uh, Erastus, in return for his idolship, laid the pavement at his own expense for this theater. So they found, dating back to this same century in Corinth, they found a description of someone named Erastus, who was apparently uh, the idol or the A-I-D-E-L in Latin. The closest translation we have to English of that word is city treasurer. So some city treasurer named Erastus in Corinth, he helped pay and fund this building. So what can we gather from that? Okay, 2 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, hey, Erastus remained at Corinth. So we can have some measure of confidence. This is probably the same guy, might be the same guy. And so we have Erastus, who's a city manager, wealthy person of prominence, who started following Jesus. And Erastus was this buddy of Timothy's, and he says, hey, he's in Corinth. Here's the next name. The next name is Trophimus. Trophimus. We'll call him, in light of tonight, Trophy, okay? We'll call him Trophy. Trophy. So Trophy, he says, Paul says about Trophy, he's sick, he's ill, and he's in Miletus. Now, Miletus, I'm sure as all of us know, is 36 miles south of Ephesus, okay? Uh, it's, it's not too far away from Ephesus, but he's, apparently he's not doing well. We don't know the extent of it, but he's sick. And so Paul tells Timothy, he says, hey, Trophimus is not doing well. He's sick, and he's in Miletus. Now, what we know about Trophimus is he's a Gentile Christian. What does that mean? That means that he started following Jesus not out of a Jewish ethnicity, not knowing about the Old Testament of the Bible, not knowing about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all these stories that form this rich Jewish heritage. No, he came to faith in Jesus out of a Greek pagan worldview. From the city of Ephesus, that meant he probably worshipped the goddess Artemis and a pantheon of gods. He comes from a completely different worldview than someone who was born and raised Jewish. And so out of that completely different worldview and religious experience growing up, Trophimus hears about Jesus. He believes his life is changed and transformed, and he starts following Jesus. And so Trophimus, he's very different. He's from modern-day Turkey. He looks different than Prisca and Aquila. He, he's different than the Jewish Christians and what they have as their past. And so that's who Trophimus is, and in a little bit, we're going to get more into his story because we find out a little bit more that's really, really significant. 
But let's then move on to the next set. This is the last set. Don't worry. No more names after this. So the last set is who he's saying, hey, I want you to know that these folks from Rome say hello to you guys in Ephesus. And here are the names. Hello from Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. Now, we don't have any record in any other part of the Bible about these names. They don't show up in any other parts of the Bible. The only things that we know that are of note that are interesting is Linus, according to church tradition, and we have pretty good confidence in the reliability of this, Linus was very likely one of the leaders, central leaders of the church in Rome. One of the chief overseers of the church church at Rome. So Linus was this person of prominence in Rome, inside the church. The other interesting thing of note is the woman Claudia. Claudia. And so within this list, I want you to note something. This was a very, in the first century, a very male-dominant culture. And note how this list begins and ends. Starts with a woman, Prisca, listed before her husband, and it ends with a woman, Claudia. And so here's what we see in a very male-dominant culture and society. What we see within the family of faith is women who have prominent roles in ministry. Women who are honored and are a part of their squad. They're a part of their friendship. So Paul, imagine if you're writing a letter to someone, you're including in that letter the people that you love and know the most and updating your friend on the people that are important in your life. And Paul wants him to know how Claudia and how Priscilla are doing. They're a part of their family. They're a part of their ministry team. And so what do we do with this letter, with this letter where it has all these names if we can just think about all of these Different stories and places. You got Corinth and Ephesus and Miletus and Rome, all these different places. What do we do with a list like this? Well, uh, just by show of hands, who here watches um, This Is Us? Anybody here watch the show This Is Us? Okay, several people in this room. For those of you who don't know, okay, so This Is Us is a show where they trace the stories of all these different individuals. It follows this family, goes forward in time, back in time. And what happens throughout the story is the writers, they'll like tell the same story through one person's perspective. And then the next episode, they'll tell the other, the side of the story from another person's perspective. And then what ends up happening is you're seeing the same events, but transpire through different eyes. And then all the paths cross and then the music starts playing and you're just weeping and crying because it's so beautiful. And you're just overwhelmed and overcome. It's like, that's why he said that on the phone earlier. You know, so you're just having this moment. So here's, here's my hope. We just went through a lot of names and talked through a lot of stories and Eubulus and Pudens and Trophimus, all these names. Here's my hope. My hope is that right now we kind of have that intersecting moment where we see why is this in the Bible? Why all these names? What's happening here? Here's what I want you to note from this list. What we just read, what we just read in that list was Paul describing men and women who were in ministry together, friends together. He describes in that list a married power couple in Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, of a widow and her children. We read in that list the author who's a single man writing a letter to Timothy, someone who's of a younger generation, a young man that he has to encourage and say to him, hey, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. We see in that list people who are ethnically Jewish, who were raised with that worldview, who had that idea and those scriptures, and we read about someone who was born in Ephesus, raised with a pagan philosophy, looked very different, had different skin tone, had a different language that he was taught to speak, 
We read about in that list about blue-collar tent makers and white-collar city managers, people who work with their hands and people who deal with budgets. We read in that list people who are from geographically different parts of the large Roman Empire who carried with them very different cultures. It's like saying someone who lived in Toronto and Miami and all the differences in culture that that brings. People who all over the map with all these differences and distinctions have become family. And Paul wants Timothy to know what's happening with his family with the people he loves and knows. Here's what we see. Within a few short decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has formed this family in all sorts of parts of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire to exist to that time. He has formed a family for himself from different nations, languages, different social classes, from different backgrounds, ideology. Jesus has created this family for himself, united under him. See, what we see in these names is a demonstration, really implicitly, what is explicitly taught in other parts of the Bible. I want to read for you Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. This is the same writer, Paul. He writes this letter, and here's what he describes is the picture of the church. He says this, here, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Here in this verse, Paul teaches something that is so important for us to know and understand as a church. He says, when it comes to the family of faith, the human categories that are often used to divide, and the way he arranges these in this verse in Colossians 3.11 are arranged purposely. He says, Greek and Jew. For the Jewish people, that was the main distinction. You were either Jewish or of some other ethnicity. Then he says, circumcised or uncircumcised. Circumcision, the mark of the Jewish people, the sign of their covenant. Jews would often use the term uncircumcised as a derogatory slur. Use it as a slur against Gentiles. In fact, in the story of David and Goliath, David taunts Goliath, calls him uncircumcised as a derogatory slur towards him. Here he talks about barbarian and Scythians. Barbarians and Scythians were different groups of people, different ethnicities that Greeks looked down on and thought were less than. They made fun of, they slurred. They were prejudiced against barbarians and Scythians. Thought that they were, that's where we get the term barbaric. Uneducated, no good. Paul is saying there's neither slave nor free where in the Roman Empire indentured servitude was rampant. Many who didn't have their freedom. Paul is saying that in the family of faith, those human categories get swallowed up because Christ is all and in all. There's this unity that is a miracle that happens in in the church. That happens in a local church and also in churches, capital C Church, all around the world. There's a miracle that takes place. And what I want us to see, the note I want us to leave with today, there's one thing I want you to remember, take down, mark down in your notes, here it is, is that the miracle of our unity is best displayed on the canvas of our diversity. The miracle of our unity is best displayed on the canvas of our diversity. You see, God is like this master artist. And he wants to demonstrate his reconciling power, his incredible grace and forgiveness, his love. He wants to demonstrate this to a watching world. And so what does he do? He takes different people who look different, talk different, think different. 
approach problems differently, approach politics differently, who speak different languages. He brings them together and forms a family because unity is so much more beautiful when the canvas is full of different colors and shapes and sizes and when things look different and God demonstrates that he can form a family from such different people. What does that communicate to the watching world? It shows what Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus said, you will, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another, through your love. These distinctions about us, the things that make us different, serve to give us more and more opportunities and more and more ways to show just how incredible God's reconciling power is. You know, if you think about the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, there's this story account of how sin entered the world, how disobedience to God entered into the world. And God had told Adam and Eve, he said, hey, I made this beautiful garden for you. You can take and eat of any tree in the garden. Just don't eat of the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve, rather than believing God's word, they take the forbidden fruit. They believe the lie of the serpent. And what happens right after that? Adam and Eve hide from God. God comes looking for them in the garden, and it says that they hide from him. Where God's presence now is something scary that they want nothing to do with. What has happened? Well, because of their sin, alienation from God has been introduced. Separation from God has been introduced. So their reaction is to run from God, to hide from him. Because we need reconciliation with God. This is what Jesus came to offer, reconciliation with our creator. So that we don't hide from him or run from him, but that we run to him. But that's not, only, that, that's not the only thing that happened. As soon as Adam and Eve, they ran from God, God came to them, he confronted them, and then you know what happens next. They started blaming each other. They started arguing with each other. And so what we see happen because of sin is not only that we need reconciliation with God, we also need reconciliation with one another. We need some supernatural help to bring about unity where there's division and hurt. And this is precisely what Jesus came to do. He came to reconcile us to God first and foremost, and then the second greatest commandment, like the first Jesus said, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's to be reconciled with God and to be reconciled with our neighbor, to show unity, to love as Jesus loved. This is what Jesus is doing in the world, and what the gospel, the message of Jesus does is it undercuts any sense of superiority we might have. How can I feel superior to someone of a different status or a different background than me when I've believed the message of Jesus that says I was lost and I could not save myself? I was in my sin and in the pit and Jesus came and rescued me. It's not because I'm good enough, smart enough, obedient enough. No, Jesus by his grace pulled me up and he set my feet on solid ground. It was all Jesus. Christ is all and in all. I mean, that undercuts any sense of superiority we might have. And so just in this moment, if we could just have a little bit of real talk, this is a topic that I would venture to say many in this room, we have some wounds. Maybe you're someone who has been wounded because a person in your life treated you different because of who you are, because of the ethnicity that you have, or because of how you were raised, or the language you speak, or your accent. 
Maybe you've been wounded, belittled, excluded, made fun of. Maybe some of us in this room have been the ones that do the wounding. Or we've wounded someone else, excluded someone else. And it's a message like this that it's so tempting to just think to ourselves, well, I know someone who really needs to hear that. I know someone who needs to hear about, you know, showing love to people that are different. Man, my coworker, whew. Or that family member of mine, that comment they made at Thanksgiving, that story they told, and they, they're the ones who really need to hear something like this. And we can immediately forget that each of us, we are prone to show partiality or favoritism to people based on their status, people based on whether or not they're like us. And what the gospel calls us to do is to look at people through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of God's eyes, people for whom Jesus died and loves. There's equal ground at the cross where no status, class, upbringing, language is better than the other. All Christ is all and in all. And so this is what Jesus came to do. He came to bring this about. And so here, I want to caution us. There are two extremes that we can float to and from on this area that are damaging and hurtful. And so here's, here's the first one. I want to make sure that we don't excuse ourselves, write ourselves off and say, well, this isn't for me. I'm fine in this area. Here are two extremes we got to be careful of that we don't wander into. Here's the first one, is that we take our distinctions, the things that make us diverse and different, and we take that distinction, turn it into a virtue by which we judge other people based on. Let me give you an example. There are some cultures that really value education. Highly value education. Some families, I mean, education is critical. And I would say most cultures say education is important. But there are some that so emphasize education, their, their children typically have a regimented schedule. Uh, they're, they're invested in. Their finances for that family are poured into, invested into that child's education. For them, they value that. Now, that's a wonderful thing to value education. And in many ways, that might distinguish that culture, that family. Here's where we get into trouble. When we worship that distinction, what that looks like is now I turn that distinction into a virtue by which I judge other families because their children aren't as regimented as mine. Because my kids are being tutored in this way and this way and this way and I'm spending my money in their educational investment and I see all these other families and they're doing all this other stuff. And we start to turn a distinction as though it's become a law that we then judge other people based on or start to look down on others based on whether or not they meet that standard. Maybe not education. For some people, it's just family time. We do the same thing with this. Some families, family time is what's valued. It's just part of the culture. Family time matters most. And so what we can do when it comes to family time is elevate it to this place where we say, you know what? I'm going to take my kid out for a week from school and we're going to go make memories together. And that's how we're going to spend our time. And it can be tempting for the family that values family time, has that distinction from that culture, and start to look down on other families that are all about education. They don't have fun with their kids. We could take our distinctions, turn them into a virtue, and start condemning other people because of that. And so when it comes to our differences, our, the things that make us diverse, we can't worship them, we can't make them law and start to look down on people whether or not they live up to our standard. But here's the other extreme we can't go down into. We can't fall into the trap of ignoring our differences. We can't fall into the trap of trying to sweep our differences under the rug and ignore them. I mean, we're different. You have a different story than my story. 
You may speak a different language than I speak. Your family, your heritage carries with you a story that maybe I don't know about. Your views on certain topics may be different because of your experience. We carry with us some differences, and the other error we can make in the church is just ignore them. No, no, that's not what we're about. See, our differences, they provide the opportunity so that we can show the world around us that though we might be different, we love one another and we're united under Christ. That Christ is all and in all. And so I can learn from someone who has different views on this thing than I do. And I can disagree and say, hey, you know what, I I think differently on that, but I love you, bro. And in a world that is growing increasingly polarized, how attractive is it for people to see a group of very different people, people who are coming out of all sorts of different philosophies, starting to follow Jesus, people who are coming from different languages, ethnicities, how attractive is it to our world to see a family of people who are different that love one another, that display this unity in the midst of their diversity. See, that picture, the the miracle of our unity is best displayed on the canvas of our diversity. That picture is a witness to our watching world of what Jesus can do. We live in one of the most diverse cities in the entire United States with people who are coming from all over Latin America, people who are coming from Asia, We have individuals coming from different Caribbean islands. Uh, This is one of the most diverse places in the entire United States. What a beautiful opportunity for us as a church that God has called to us to be here, to display his reconciling power, to be a light to the world around us of what it looks like to be a family, a family that's united, not uniform. See, a little while ago I mentioned Trophimus, and I shared with you that we're going to get back to his story. I want to finish up his story and take you back to something significant that took place in the book of Acts. So Trophimus, if you'll remember in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, hey, he's ill, he's sick in Miletus. He's not doing well. And Paul tells Timothy, Trophimus is sick in Miletus, and Timothy would know of Trophimus. You see, in Acts chapter 21, we read about Trophimus, this Gentile Christian from Ephesus, who traveled with Paul over to Jerusalem. And it was Paul's intention that he would bring with him certain Christians who had come from other nations, Gentile Christians. He wanted to bring them to Jerusalem to show the leaders of the church in Jerusalem what God was doing among the nations. So he comes and he brings all these different individuals from different places And he shares with James and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he's sharing with them what God is doing among the Gentiles, that Jesus is saving souls from people all over the world. And so Trophimus comes with Paul over to Jerusalem. The brothers in Jerusalem rejoice. They're excited to see what God is doing. And then Acts chapter 21, this happens starting in verse 27. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, speaking about Paul, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone and everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, 
dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So Paul brings his friend Trophimus, whom he likely led to faith in Jesus. He brings Trophimus with him to Jerusalem. And some people wrongly accuse Paul of taking Trophimus into the inner court of the temple. See, the temple complex in Jerusalem, it was arranged in courts, and there was this outer court where the Gentiles, those of different ethnicities, were welcome to come. But then there was about this four and a half foot wall that stood that divided the outer court and the inner court. And only Jews could enter into that inner court. And on this wall was fixed a stone etched in Greek letters that warned any Gentile from entering into that place. In fact, here's a picture of one such stone that was discovered, archaeologists found in Jerusalem. That stone would have been fixed to that wall and written in Greek is a warning to any Gentile, forbidding them from entering in. Here's what it says. Whoever is caught going past this wall will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So Paul gets accused of bringing Trophimus in, where Trophimus is not supposed to go simply because of his ethnicity. And Paul is accused of this and he's nearly killed. Imagine how Trophimus felt knowing his friend, someone so meaningful to him who had led him likely to faith in Jesus. Imagine how he felt. His friend Paul almost killed because of his relationship with him. And Trophimus, this man, this man from Ephesus, interestingly enough, Paul writes a letter to the church at Ephesus a few years later. Trophimus' home church. And when he writes this letter to him, Paul makes mention of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be a reconciled people from different places. And it's almost like you just get the sense that Paul has that story in the back of his mind as he writes these words. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Speaking about Gentiles, those who are not ethnically Jewish, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. You were strangers, alienated. You were on the outside, not welcomed in, didn't have the promises. You were strangers and aliens, foreigners, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, Paul here writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, he had just so beautifully articulated how Jesus reconciles us to God. Verses 1 through 10, it's this beautiful demonstration of what Jesus has done to reconcile us to God. And then right after in the verses that follow, he says, this is what Jesus has done to reconcile us to one another. He has broken down in his body of flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Those walls in between us, those ordinances that say you're not welcomed in, Jesus has taken a sledgehammer to those. We're family now. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one whose blood was shed so that people far from God, people who were far off like you and like me, could be brought near. Who is Jesus? 
He's the one who takes those who are spiritually dead, every single one of us, and breathes life into us. Who is Jesus? He's the one who takes people from different backgrounds, who speak different languages, who live in geographically distant places, who come from different cultures, and who got saved out of their mess in different ways. And he takes them and he makes them a family. And he values and honors each member. Gives them a role, gives them a gift, says, I'm calling you out, I'm sending you out, your family. This is who Jesus is. And this is the opportunity before us as a church, in this place, in this city, to share the miracle of our unity on the canvas of our diversity. That we're different in so many ways. And that's a beautiful thing. Because the most important thing about us the thing that matters most is the same. We're redeemed. We're sons and daughters. We're brothers and sisters. And that's true of you. There may be some of you in this room that you've never put your trust in Jesus. You've never believed in him. You haven't received the forgiveness he offers. I don't want to leave this moment without giving you the opportunity to put your trust in him, to be reconciled to God. And so would you bow your heads, close your eyes, Take a quiet moment right there where you are. If that's you, and you right now in this moment need to say yes to Jesus, to believe he died for you, and that he rose from the dead for you, then right there where you are, would you just cry out to God in your heart and say something like this, say, God, I believe in you. I believe that Jesus came for me, that he died on the cross to pay for my sins that he rose from the dead. Jesus, help me to follow you with my life. You are my Lord. Father in heaven, I pray that for those in this room that for the first time put their trust in you, that you would work in their hearts. Seal that seed. Guard them, protect them. And Lord, I pray for each of us in this room that we would be a united people that in an increasingly polarized and divided world, we would demonstrate the unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings brothers and sisters together and makes this unlikely, uncommon family. Help us to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was a decision you made to follow Jesus, to put your trust in him, I wanna invite you to go ahead and grab the connection card that's in one of the chair backs in front of you and a pen and mark the box that says, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. We want to celebrate that with you. We want to put a Bible in your hands. And you can take that Get Connected card back to our offering boxes around campus, anywhere. Drop those off and we'll be in touch with you this week. And so we're going to finish our time by worshiping together. So would you go ahead and stand with us all as we close and sing. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.